This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Army might be a ground-based force, but it's spending more time in the clouds, commercial cloud computing. In fact, with some solid experience in migrating computing workloads to the cloud, Army brass are considering a revised strategy for large-scale migrations. Just one story in this week's DOD Reporter's Notebook with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Mossioni. Jared, we'll start with you. What is the Army's new strategy for cloud migrations? Not exactly a strategy here, but it is another sign that uh, things are getting more and more serious in DOD when it comes to actually moving to commercial cloud environments. What, what they've done here is issue a request for information, basically shopping for a vendor to handle the soup-to-nuts process of moving applications from Army data centers and DOD data centers to commercial cloud environments. And this, this vendor, presumably just one vendor, would be in charge of, first of all, going out and assessing the readiness of all of the Army's applications to move to cloud environments, trying to figure out exactly how much refactoring, reworking, recoding would be needed for them to run efficiently in the cloud, and then actually handling the migration work. There were some um, optional services the Army's also contemplating as part of this big enterprise contract, and those would be, you know, long-term sustaining those applications once they have moved to the cloud, and also offering training to Army personnel to operate those applications in the cloud. But this follows on a lot of work that the Army has already done to to build its own enterprise cloud environment, almost in lieu of the fact that there is uh, no Jedi cloud yet, which there was supposed to be quite a while ago now. They've, they've developed their own They've developed their own enterprise cloud offerings using both Amazon Web Services and Azure through this new Army Enterprise Cloud Management Agency. And that enterprise cloud is where they would want this this new vendor who would uh, be the contract holder on this new contract vehicle to move basically all of those applications to roughly somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 150 per year would be kind of the battle rhythm, at least at first. Well, but that approach then could accommodate Jedi, should Jedi ever get established in one form or another. We don't know yet, and because we don't know exactly what form Jedi is going to take, but I, I think that is what everybody's kind of striving to do. The Air Force and the Navy obviously have gone about their own enterprise cloud approaches as well, but the rhetoric around all of it has been, so far anyway, if and when Jedi gets up and running, we want to construct these things in, in such a way that migrating them from one cloud to another would be relatively low effort. And Scott, let's paraphrase a famous horror movie for one of your stories, Artificial Intelligence is People. And a lot of that work is being done by foreign students, scientists, and other workers here in the United States. And now there's a gambit to try to let them stay longer and do more work here. That's right. Well, as everyone knows, the United States has always been a melting pot and a big honeypot, really, for a lot of of foreign nationals who want to come and do excellent work. The National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence is pushing Congress to allow more foreign scientists and engineers, mathematicians, other technology-focused careers to come to the United States and actually stay here. So the commission, which is led by Eric Schmidt, who's the former CEO of Alphabet, and also the vice chairman, Robert Work, who's the former defense deputy defense secretary, sent a letter to Congress urging them to adopt one of the recommendations from their study, which came out not too long ago. And that recommendation would exempt any STEM advanced degree holders from green green card numerical limits. So, you know, they put certain quotas on the, the number of people who can come into the United States from certain countries. They would get exempt from that and not really hold up anyone else from getting into the country as well. Uh, the, the catch is, is that you got to be a pretty darn smart person to uh, do this. Uh, you have to, first of all, have a doctoral 
uh, degree. Secondly, you need to have a job offer. And uh, thirdly, you have to make sure that you're not uh, any th- national security threat. So those are the three criteria. Uh, pretty hard to meet, uh, especially, especially if um, you know you are not someone who's really into rocket science or something like that. But uh, the United States is a high demand for these types of people, and they want to make sure that they stay here, especially if they're educating them. And do we have any numbers on this? Do they indicate how many people could be eligible that are here now or any kind of quantity? Yeah, they haven't really said how many people are here right now that could be eligible for it. However, Code.org says the United States has more than 400,000 computer science jobs that are available and only about 71,000 qualified computer scientists are really graduating annually to fill those gaps. So uh, as you can tell, there's a high demand for those sorts of jobs. We're speaking with Federal News Network Scott Massioni and Jared Serbu. And Jared, you're reporting that there's been only marginal improvement in a long festering problem, and that's the condition of Army housing. Yeah, this is based on the latest survey data that the Army released last week for the first quarter of 2021. And, and the improvements are marginal. When the, the, These are basically composite scores that they construct after going out and surveying uh, residents, renters, essentially, at, at Army bases around the world. But I think the important thing, the thing that jumps out at you when you look at these numbers is that in every single category, there is improvement, even though it's only a few percentage points in most of them. So they look at nine different what they call success factors, this private consultant that that actually conducts the survey and and assembles them into those composite scores. And there's improvement on all nine, ranging from uh, you know, a 2.2 percentage point improvement to a 5.8 percentage point improvement. But I, I, I do think that that sort of starts to tell you that things are moving in the right direction as far as the quality of the housing. I don't want to oversell it. I am sure that there are still a lot of housing units that are in uh, that are in poor condition. And in fact, the, the survey sort of points to that. This particular sur- survey was uh, relatively heavily weighted toward overseas army installations and uh, European bases were among the lowest scoring. But even there, too, there were some, again, marginal improvements. And, and, and maybe the most important one to look at, the area where the Army got the highest increase was on a measure of what they call renewal intention, which basically asks soldiers and families living in existing homes, hey, if you were restationed at the same base that you're at now, would you want to live in this same unit or type of unit? And that went that went from a score of 63 in uh, fiscal year 2020 to 68.8 in this latest survey. So again, don't want to oversell it. I don't think that there are huge improvements here, but considering the Army finally just put its eye on this ball that they had not been paying attention to for the past 20 years and and really started getting after this problem only about two years ago, um, you know, I, I do think you have to say that there are signs that things are getting better. Well, hopefully people would stay in their unit, not because the one next door is that much worse. But, Scott, when you leave your Army housing, you need to have a uniform on. And the disparity in out-of-pocket costs between men and women in the military, that is getting some legislative attention now. It is. If you remember back in February, we reported on how the Government Accountability Office put out a report that showed women are paying more for clothing in the military. And that's because they really just have extra sorts of clothes that they need to wear that are not reimbursable. This is mostly for enlisted women in the military. And uh, that really caught the eye of some top women in in Congress, Jackie Spear, Julia Brownlee, and Elise Stefanik. They all chair or are ranking members of either a task force or a subcommittee within Congress, and all dealing with either veterans or military. What this would do, first of all, was put some money back into women's pockets who serve in the military. It would give them a reimbursement for that that uh, disparity between 
the uh, the men and women. And that disparity at times was pretty pretty heavy. I mean, it could be up to like four times the amount that that men paid uh, out of pocket. Uh, we're talking, you know, up to six hundred, seven hundred dollars here. So uh, something that that's very important to them would also ask the military leaders and military secretaries to develop consistent criteria for determining what is or isn't a uniquely military clothing item and then uh, have regular reviews on making sure that there aren't the disparities that have created uh, over the past few years or really decades. Federal News Network Scott Mossioni and Jared Serbu check out their latest DOD reporters notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader. All of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them 
to the next best place. So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. Uh, led This is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling. Uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.